When you covet, you are craving what God has given to someone else because you are not content with God or his gifts to you. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd opened, uh, open your Bibles to 1 Kings 21, 1 Kings 21. We're in a study, as you know, in 1 and 2 Kings, and we'll probably be here, Lord willing, for a few more months. Uh, the, the Kings and Chronicles are biographical, historical documents in the Old Testament that give us an enormous amount of examples and warnings. Examples do what they did, warnings do not do what they did, right? So in today's lesson, we're going to have an example of what to not do. We're going to look at coveting and lying and stealing and murder. It's going to be a very inspirational, uplifting message for all of you, right? It will be a classic warning. Look at what these people did and do not go and do likewise. Do anything different, but don't do what they did, right? So here's the context. Last week, we saw... Uh, Elijah on Mount Sinai, God had, uh, he had went down to hear from the Lord, and he in fact heard from the Lord. And one of the last commands, God recommissioned him, anoint two kings, and anoint Elisha as his successor, which he did. And we now a period of, a period of silence uh, between Elisha and Elijah for a couple more chapters. And sometime after this, that event, we come to chapter 20, and I'm going to summarize that for you real briefly. 1 Kings 20 really summarizes two battles between Syria or Aram. Your Bible may say Aram, A-R-A-M, like the sandwich. Two battles between Syria and Israel. Ben-Hadad, that's kind of the name Pharaoh, it's a title. Uh, he was the king of Syria, and he came and invaded northern Israel with 32 kings. That means city-states. These weren't kingdom in the sense of uh, major states, but 32 rulers of city-states along with Ben-Hadad, invaded Israel and placed Samaria, that's the capital of northern Israel, the ten tribes, under siege. And Ahab refused their demands. In essence, they said, we want to come in the city walls and take anything we want to take, including your wives and children and gold and silver. And Ahab says, no, nah, not going to happen. So they threatened to level Samaria to the ground. And they were preparing to attack, and a prophet of the Lord, unnamed, shows up and he says, Ahab... Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to deliver you from these invaders so that you will know that Yahweh is the God of glory, right? That he is the Lord. Your Bible probably says L-O-R-D, all caps. That's the formal name of God, Yahweh, who he revealed to Moses and the burning bush. So Ben-Hadad and his 32 kings, it's about noon and they're getting drunk, which is just, of course, the best thing to do when you're ready to fight a battle, you know, uh, put your brain to sleep, which they did. And uh, God's prophet tells Ahab, you are to initiate the battle. And it's almost hilarious. They come out of Samaria and there's 232 rulers of the provinces and 7,000 troops. 
against six figures of Syrian troops. So it's kind of an unequal battle, right? But God enabled Israel to slaughter a great number of Syrians, and the rest of them fled. So the next scene is the Syrians are back in their capital of Damascus, and they say, why did we lose this battle? I mean, other than being drunk, you know, why did we lose this battle? And they said, here's the deal. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a God of the mountains. And Samaria is on a mountain. And we fought a battle with someone whose God is God of the mountains. We should not have done that. Next time, we're going to fight them on the plains, the smooth areas like the Jezreel Valley. There's no mountains there. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, has no power on the plains. So we're going to fight on the plains because then we'll conquer them for sure. Right? And a man of God comes and says, uh, Ahab, get ready. They're going to come back. I have a word for you. 1 Kings 20, 28. Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord. Now that means God himself is speaking. Quote, Because the Arameans have said, Quote, The Lord is a God of the mountains, and he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this great multitude into your hand. Why? So that you will know that I am the Lord. So this victory wasn't just because you're nice, Ahab, you're a wicked, evil ruler, but I'm revealing myself and my power to you so that you would worship me and follow him. So on the day of the battle, Israel kills 100,000 Syrian foot soldiers in one day. Now that's pretty significant losses even in today's you know, numbers. The rest of the Syrians flee to a nearby city called Aphek and the city wall falls on them and kills another 27,000 of them in one whack. So Ahab captures Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and instead of killing him like God wanted him to, he calls him his brother, brings him up in the chariot and cuts a trade deal and a military pact with someone who hates Israel and hates the God of Israel. Now, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. God has given you two major victories over people that want you dead, and you're going to make friends with them. So a prophet confronts Ahab, and he says, you let go a man who I wanted killed because I wanted to protect Israel and I wanted to reveal myself. Therefore, Ahab, your own life is going to be forfeited, which means the Arameans are going to kill you because you didn't take care of business the way I wanted to so you would think now Ahab would kind of figure out that we've experienced two supernatural victories. God did this for a reason. A prophet of God told me why it occurred, but it says he went home and pouted. When it says sullen and vexed, that means pouting. That means whining, right? You know? Anyway, that's chapter 20. Verse chapter 21 is where we are today. Let's go to chapter 21, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. Or, if you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, quote, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers, unquote. And he lay down on his bed, wah, wah, and turned away his face, 
and ate no food. Wow. You'd really want this guy commanding your armies, wouldn't you? Here's the principle. When you covet, you are craving what God has given to someone else because you are not content with God or his gifts to you. When you covet, you are craving what God has given to someone else because you are not content with God, neither are you content with his gifts to you. It's easy, always easier to see coveting in someone else's life, right? It's very difficult to see it in your own life. Coveting is the last commandment, and it's the only one that is invisible. It takes place in the human heart, and yet it is the root source of almost all violations of the Ten Commandments. The Jezreel Valley, which we looked at last week or the week before, is this vast expanse. It's a hugely fertile valley, a lot, a lot of agricultural there, and Ahab's palace was on an elevated area so he could look over the valley and see the vegetable garden, uh, I mean, see the vineyard next door. So Ahab was coveting. He wanted what God had given to Naboth already. Now, it's not that Ahab didn't have other vineyards. We know he did because he said, look, I'll do a deal with you. I'll give you one of my other vineyards for this one, right? He coveted the vineyard because it was convenient. It was close, right? It was right next door. His vineyard butted right up against the palace grounds, and he wanted the vegetable garden so he didn't have to go far for his turnips. He could just walk at the door. So he wanted that vineyard for that purpose. Of course, the, first, the tenth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 7 says, quote, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his dox, or his donkey, unless you forgot anything there, or anything, anything that belongs to your neighbor, right? Their latest Botox job, I mean, you know, the whole deal. You can't covet anything. Their hair is so beautiful. If only I had more of that dead protein, I mean, I would be glamorous, right? I mean, that's how Hollywood thinks, right? Don't covet anything. So the source of coveting is Satan. This is not news. Lucifer. What did Satan covet? He coveted God's throne, and he coveted God's worship. He wanted the worship that belonged to God alone, and he wanted the throne and the power and the glory. So the very next time we see Satan is in the Garden of Eden, Satan tells Eve what? God is not a good God because God forbid you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can have everything else in the garden, but because he would tell that one thing from you, he's not a good God. Here's the deal, Eve. If you eat that tree, you will become like God. And you say, well, why would Eve swallow that pill? Well, number one, she didn't want to depend on God. She didn't want to obey God. She wanted to become like God. That was Satan. He tried that himself. How did it work? It didn't. Well, how did it work for Eve? She ate the fruit and immediately sin entered the world. And instead of becoming like God, Adam and Eve became separated from God. That's the lie of sin. Sin's supposed to bring you pleasure. Actually not. And just like Satan before, she became separated from God. Coveting is not being satisfied with God. It says, God, you are not enough for me. I really need this stuff over here because it's really going to make my soul happy because you don't give me what I want. Coveting believes the lie that genuine satisfaction can be found apart from the Lord himself and whatever he chooses to provide. Coveting is like drinking seawater. The more you drink, the more you crave. The more you crave, the more you drink until your kidneys go 
up in smoke and you die, right? So the opposite of coveting is contentment. Contentment. Contentment is being satisfied with God himself. Contentment is being satisfied with whatever God chooses to provide you. And he may choose to provide your neighbor with other things because God knows what your neighbor needs, yes, and God knows what you and I need, right? Contentment comes when you trust that your heavenly Father always knows what's best for you, even when it breaks your heart. That's easy for me to say. And then my heart gets broken, and I'm going, do you really believe this? You will find out whether you do or you don't. Henry David Thoreau once wrote, a man is rich in proportion to the number of things he can afford to let alone. Well, Ahab chose not to let Naboth's vineyard alone. Now, Naboth is a, is a Hebrew name. It means fruits, which was interesting because he was in the vineyard grape production business. He was a faithful follower of Yahweh. He was very likely one of the 7,000 faithful Israelites that God had told Elijah on Mount Sinai, there are 7,000 people who have not bowed to Baal. Well, this guy is obviously one of them. He must have feared God because he sure didn't fear Ahab. He told him, no way, you're going to have the vineyard. God has forbidden me to do that. So he was the God-fearer, and as a result, he did not fear evil kings or queens, even though they had put many followers of Yahweh to death. He refused to sell his vineyard regardless of price. Why? The Mosaic law said, Israel, you cannot sell your land because it's not yours. You don't own it. I own it. You are tenants on my land. Does that sound familiar for you and I? What do we own here? Zero. We are house guests on his planet. We're breathing his air right now, right? Yeah, okay. Some of you a little more than others, right? So the land was not to be sold because the land belonged to God. Leviticus 25, 23, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. He repeated that in Numbers 36, 7. No inheritance of the sons of Israel should be transferred from tribe to tribe, for the sons of Israel shall each hold the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So the land stayed within the family forever, because otherwise you would have... Five families own the whole land, and everybody else would be serfs. God knew that wealth tends to concentrate in the very few hands, and so he said, I want you to be equal, and so everybody's going to have their own land. You're not allowed to sell it. Now, Israel didn't always obey that, right? So Ahab doesn't like told being no. So what does he do? He goes to bed, and he pouts. He refuses to eat dinner. You know, I, I wonder where he learned to be a spoiled brat. He was a prince. Of course he's a spoiled brat, right? He refused to eat dinner, verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, quote, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? That's, that's first-class pout. If you're missing food, you know, you're really pouty. So he said to her, quote, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and he said to me, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Here's the principle. Since God owns everything, those who steal ultimately are stealing from God. 
Since God owns everything, those who steal are ultimately stealing from God. So Jezebel comes into the palace, doesn't see Ahab at dinner. She goes up to find out why. You can almost see Ahab, you know, with his lower lip kind of stuck out. He's recounting his troubles. It's, you know, you look at this relationship. You could write books about the relationship between Ahab and Jezebel. It's kind of like a mommy-son syndrome or maybe a puppet master syndrome. I don't know. But she's got enough strong will for both of them. Believe me, right? And he figured if he played the poor little old meat card, she would feel sorry for him and do something about it. And sure enough, she does. She's going to get him his milk and cookies. You know, it's interesting. I wonder how long he would have refused to eat if no one cared. Yeah, you don't eat, don't eat. You know, when you get hungry, you'll decide to eat. I mean, you know, like, like grow up. Sorry, you know, whatever. It's like a kid that says, unless I get my way, I'm going to hold my breath. Great. Let me get the video camera until you turn purple, right? So Jezebel takes this attitude because she comes from a nation, the Sidonians, where the king's power had no restraint. There was no constraint of by law. It was inconceivable to her that Ahab, the king, could not simply take whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, from whoever he wanted. She believed that Ahab was the supreme law of the land, which means she did not acknowledge that Yahweh, was the supreme law of the land. And human rulers are subject to the divine rulers. She did not recognize that. Human rulers simply took whatever they want whenever they wanted. She told him to cheer up, and she would get the vineyard for him in no time. And we're going to see her strategy right here in verse 8. So, she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now, she wrote in the letters saying, Quote, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, you curse God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them just as it was written in the letters which she sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people then two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not dead, alive, but dead. Here's the principle. If it's evil in God's eyes, it's evil. Even if it's legal in man's eyes. If it's evil in God's eyes, it's evil, even if it's legal in man's eyes. Never confuse legality with morality. Many, 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 many things are legal according to man's view and immoral and evil according to God's view. All you have to do is think about Roe v. Wade. And there's lots and lots and lots and lots of statutes on the books in major capitals around the world that are perfectly legal and are wicked in God's sight. When the Jews were massacred by Hitler, it was all very legal. It was on the books. That, that was the law of the land, that they could do that. It didn't make it right. It, made it, it, it was evil and wicked from the get-go. But we confuse man's opinion, which is rendered in legal terms, and God's opinion, God's law, which is written in his book. So, 
when you read how she operates, you are persuaded that she's very practiced in doing evil. She's an expert. This is something she did every day. She wrote his death warrant on the king's stationery with his royal seal. See, for her to get the vineyard, Naboth and his family had to be disappeared. But they had to be disappeared legally, right? So the plan was to steal Naboth's vineyard, uh, but it required some knowledge of the Mosaic law to make that work. The third commandment uh, in Exodus 27 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Exodus 22, 28 says, You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. So we have two commands. Don't curse God. Don't curse God's appointed leaders. But it doesn't specify the punishment at that time. Now, cursing literally means don't treat God's name, which represents everything about him, his character, his conduct, his holiness, his worth, as vain, as futile, as worthless, as trivial, as insignificant. Don't treat God casually. That's what cursing is. It's taking the holy name of God and it's using it for common purposes. It is misusing the holy name of God for our purposes. When your words and your deeds declare that which is not true about God, you are taking his name in vain. You are not treating him as holy. You are treating him as common. Most people have no idea when they say to somebody, God damn you. That is a prayer that says, I want God to consign your eternal soul to hell because I'm the Lord and I have the authority to do that. God does not cotton to nor tolerate taking his holy name for common, self-centered, sinful purposes. I'm not going to leave that unpunished, he said. Now, the most common way to take the name of the Lord in vain, and it happens all the time, is to profess your love with your mouth and then disobey him with your actions. I'm going to give you a word picture. Don't be offended. It's like a dog who licks your hands and wets all over your feet at the same time. What do you believe? Do they love me or don't they love me? Jezebel's requiring, she's really relying on historical precedent when she plotted how to have Naboth murdered. Leviticus 24 gives us historical precedent on what to do when someone curses God. Verses 10 to 23, it records the story of a man who's in a fight with another man and in the middle of that conflict, he curses God. He uses the name of God in a profane manner. So they held him in custody and said, Lord, what do you want us to do with someone who takes your name in vain? And God said, I want you to take him outside the camp and stone him with stones until he's dead, which they did. So cursing God was a capital crime. Now Jezebel is going to arrange a legally right but morally evil and wrong trial of Naboth. And she says, look, here's the steps. Number one, you have to proclaim a fast. Now, in Israel, if you proclaimed a fast, that means that you humbled yourselves before the Lord, you did not eat, you sought God's forgiveness through prayer, sackcloth, and ashes, because somebody somewhere has committed a grievous sin and you want to humble yourself before the Lord before judgment falls. So when you proclaim to fast, that was like uh, an atomic incoming bomb was coming in, and you better do something. I mean, that was very, very serious. That means someone has sinned. 
I wonder who that would be. So they put Naboth at the head of the people. Obviously, he's the one who's on trial. This is a public trial. And he was being put on trial for the sin of cursing God and the king, but when people showed up, they didn't know that. However, the Mosaic law says you can't put anybody to death except you have at least two witnesses. No one's put to death on the testimony of one witness. You have to have two witnesses for all capital crimes, Deuteronomy 17. So Jezebel told the nobles and elders, look, here's the deal. You locate two worthless people, sons of Belial, sons of Satan, uh, who can be bribed to give false testimony against Naboth. And they're going to be called forward and swear under oath before all the people that they had heard Naboth curse God and curse the king. And obviously, since cursing God was a capital crime, the entire assembly then would take Naboth outside the city gates and stone him with rocks until he were dead. And by the way, you stone them with rocks as opposed to wringing their neck with your hands because you didn't want to touch the evil person. I mean, you didn't want to be close to evil, so you stone them with rocks so you can execute them at a distance at that point in time. Now, the, the toadies under Jezebel's government in Jezreel were obviously under Jezebel's thumb, and they did exactly as they were commanded. They just went along to get along, right? That's typically what happens. Uh, 2 Kings 9.26 tells us that not only was Naboth stoned, all his sons were stoned with him because you have to eliminate the heirs because if Naboth is stoned, the title deed for that vineyard goes to the heirs, so you have to leave him childless for the king in order to expropriate the property. So you have an unjust trial, false charges, lying witnesses, and judges that had to be bought off through Jezebel's intimidation. What's really scary is that the people of his own town who knew him helped murder him, right? Either they believed the testimony of the two false witnesses, which contraindicated everything we know about his character, or they murdered him even though though they knew he was innocent. Either they were intimidated by uh, Jezebel or they were idol worshipers along with Jezebel and Ahab, and they resented his stand for Yahweh, so they figured we can get rid of this guy who's given us a guilty conscience, right? So the entire community was guilty of accessory to murder because the Scripture does not command that just the leaders go out. It says all Israel goes out and stones the guilty party. So once Naboth is dead, they notify Jezebel. They don't notify Ahab. Everybody knows she's the power behind the throne. Right? Everybody knows that Ahab just does what he's told. Right? So she says, Ahab, arise, take possession of your vineyard because a dead man can't contest the theft. How are they going to say? They're dead. Right? I want you to notice how many of God's commands are broken because of coveting. Well, number one, they were already guilty of, number one, having other gods before God. They valued things other than God. Number two, they made idols. They worshiped Baal instead of Yahweh. So they were guilty of the first two to start with. Naboth coveted, which led to lying, right, all the deception, stealing the property, and murder. Reminds us of David. When King David committed the adultery with Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah, one of his best soldiers, he already had seven wives. You think that's enough? I think that's too many. Like, way too many. Like, six too many. At any rate, his coveting led to adultery, a mountain of lies over months, theft, and murder. And we've mentioned this before. Sin is never static. Sin metastasizes. It grows into more sin. It's the nature of sin. It's a cancer, spiritual cancer. Kill you. Verse 16. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead... 
Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Here's the principle. No one gets away with anything. Everyone is accountable to God. No one gets away with anything. Everyone's accountable to God. We need to remember that today because many, many people believe that they believe that God is sovereign, but when things really get bad, they have to take matters in their own hands because God's just not working fast enough on their schedule. So they go do a lot of stupid stuff, right? If God is sovereign, then he will take action when he deems appropriate to take action. Yes? And we are going to let him be God, or we're going to rebel against him being God, but that's a choice. Obviously, we see the difference between Elijah and Ahab. Now, Ahab's in Samaria at this time, which is about 25 miles south, and he gets word that Naboth is dead, so he goes to the vineyard that he has stolen, and he actually thought he'd gotten away with it. I mean, think about it. He hadn't instigated Naboth's murder. That was Jezebel. I mean, she's the one who got him killed, right? I mean, she'd used his royal seal to send letters with his name concerning Naboth's trial. But God doesn't let him off the hook. God says, you are responsible for everything that occurs in your realm of responsibility, in your area of, of, of authority. And that's true for us, too. Parents, you're the architects of the family. Your children are architects of their family. Everyone is accountable to God for their own behavior and their own belief system. God's word is now coming from him through Elijah to Ahab. And it's been some years probably since Elijah fled from Jezebel to Horeb, and he's back in the land, but he hasn't been used by God at this point in time. As a matter of fact, this is the first time we hear of God speaking to Elijah since the mountain Sinai, which probably occurred two or three years before then. I'm sure that Elijah must have had a lot of days to repent of his fear and flight, etc. But now when God speaks to him, he responds immediately. God tells Elijah, I want you to charge Ahab with murder, and I want you to pronounce judgment on him. The Mosaic law commanded the death penalty for someone who murdered somebody else and stole their property. So sin by Murder and sin by theft was going to be dealt with, 2 Samuel 11. So God now pronounces divine judgment on Ahab, and he says, in the same place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, who you killed, the dogs are going to lick up your blood as well. As you have done, so it will be done to you. Verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Here's the principle. God's punishment for sin is perfectly proportional to the severity of the sin. God's punishment for sin 
is perfectly proportional to the severity of the sin. Now, Ahab had made himself God's enemy through his repeated rebellion and his repeated sin. And therefore, he thought anybody that represented Yahweh, which was Elijah, he thought Elijah was his enemy. That's not true. Paradoxically, Elijah was probably Ahab's only real friend. You know why? Because he's the only one who would tell him the truth. He's the only one who would tell him the truth. One of the great curses of leadership or positions of power is you tend to live with people who will tell you what they think you want to hear. So your ability to understand what's really going on in the world is always three layers from reality because people tell you what you want to hear. Elijah was the only one in the entire realm that told Ahab the truth from God. He was his conscience, really, who reminded his need of a savior and his need to turn from sin. You, every one of us need friends who tell the truth, whether we want to hear it or not, because the truth will set you free. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You know, someone who tells you everything you want to believe about yourself, you know they're lying, and you know you're lying too. Right? I mean, come on. None of us are that good. We're all sinners. We need to know what God's Word said. We need the truth. But sinners hate the truth and hate the people who tell them the truth. Elijah told them the truth. Elijah said, Ahab, you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab spent his whole life, what? Practicing evil. He sold his soul because he loved his sin more than he loved God. He had an innocent man murdered for a vegetable garden. And it didn't bother him. What does that tell you about his conscience? I was corrupted. You know, he got the iron out and just seared it. We live in a culture that has a seared conscience. If your great-grandparents who died in 1970 came back to life today, they would not recognize this nation. No way. They would say, are you kidding This is an amoral banana republic. I can't believe you're abrogating the rule of law everywhere. But we get boiled like a frog a little bit of the time, a little bit of the time, and we think it's normal. It is not normal. It has not been normal since Genesis, since the Garden of Eden. Ahab traded his eternal soul for the pleasures of sin. Bad trade, Jesus said in Mark 8, 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul. You know why your soul is so valuable? It lives forever. Either united with God in heaven forever, or you're separated from God forever in hell. You can own the whole world. Guess what? Wowie kazowie, how long does it last? You get a few decades on planet Earth. If you get 10 decades, you're probably doing well, right? You won't even like the last one or two. I mean, you know, it's not going to be that good. Have you ever figured out that the pleasures of sin are really overrated? Let me clue you in on something. For the Christian, for the Christian, sin is only pleasurable until you actually sin. Because as soon as you sin, guilt enters your life and you are eaten alive, your conscience, read Psalm 51 from David, right? He committed adultery. As soon as he committed adultery, 
all the pleasure went away and nothing but pain entered his life. Because God gives us guilt to make us miserable. Why? To prompt us to repent, to prompt us to confess, to prompt us to deal with the sin in our life so we can get back in the right relationship with God. Here's the deal. For people who do not know God, for non-Christians, people who don't have a relationship with God, no Holy Spirit, sin is only pleasurable until consequences begin. Sin always has consequences. As soon as consequences begin, the pleasure goes away and the pain starts. Sin does not make sense. Why would you separate yourself from the source of joy and life and peace and hope and wisdom? I mean, it's folly. And we believe Satan's lies as a culture. Ahab said, Elijah said, because you have sold yourself to do evil, behold, I will bring evil on you. Now, this is the law of retributive providence. It's called poetic justice. It's called perfect payback. It's called what goes around comes around, right? It's called what you sow, you reap. Now, the, there are numerous examples in the Bible of this. Haman wanted to destroy Israel. He was hung on the very gallows that he had prepared to hang Mordecai on. What goes around comes around. God told his prophet Habakkuk that just as Babylon had looted many nations, many nations are going to plunder her in return. Jacob deceived his brother Esau, stole his birthright, stole his family blessing, got deceived by his father-in-law into marrying not the woman he loved, but her sister. You know, they wore veils in those days before the wedding, right? You got in the honeymoon suite and went, oh, you're not Rachel. No, now you get two for the price of one, right? <laughs> Marrying sisters is really not a good idea. Not a good idea, right? Samson. Samson had a problem with his eyes. He kept looking at women with lust. He got deceived by a Philistine woman, got captured by a countryman. What'd they do? Put out his eyes. Well, that solved his looking problem, right? Daniel's enemies conspired to what? Have him thrown in a lion's den for praying to Almighty God, right? But God rescued him, and what happened to his enemies? They got thrown in the lion's den right? And there's many, many more examples. But God always exercises retributive justice or proportional justice. In other words, the punishment must fit the crime, must be in proportion to the crime. Jesus said in Luke 12, 47, quote, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. Here's the principle. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. See, if you sin with knowledge, the more knowledge you have, it is a much more heinous, it's a much more serious crime than if you sin in ignorance. Sin is sin, but the consequences are far greater both in this life and apparently in the life to come. The more God has entrusted you with, the more he holds you accountable for. And one of the primary things he's entrusted you with is his word, and you have it in your lap, and you're accountable to know it and do it. Because you have the Holy Spirit to open your mind, to understand it. You can't say, God, I didn't understand it. He said, you got the Spirit of God. Huh? I wrote it down in English for you, right? 
Read it, study it, know it, do it, apply it. I gave you freedom in the culture in order to worship. So show up and worship, right? I mean, I've given you so much, so therefore you're accountable for more. We are accountable for a great deal, far more than we would be comfortable with. Ahab has got full knowledge of God's word. He's got the written law of God. He's had prophets, Elijah, coming to him over and over again and telling the truth. He had full knowledge, and he murdered an innocent man, and so his just punishment was death. And the consequences of his sin extended far beyond his own death, but the death of his family line. All his male descendants were be to exterminated, swept away like rubbish. See, not only did Ahab repeatedly provoke God by sinning against knowledge, it says he made Israel sin, which was even greater offense. He made sin the law of the land. And he murdered those who practiced righteousness and followed Yahweh. When sin is the law of the land, you are headed for judgment. I don't know when, I don't know how. That is God's prerogative, but that is a principle that he has promised and it will take place. One of God's goals in establishing government is to promote justice and restrain lawlessness. And we live in a world, not just the United States, a world that promotes lawlessness and persecutes righteousness. That does not bode well. Governments that not do this are not fulfilling God's purpose for their existence, and they will be held by accountable to God. Read Romans 13. Okay, verse 23. On Jezebel also the Lord has spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and the one who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven will eat. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. Here's the principle. God delights to show mercy when sinners humble themselves before him. God delights to show mercy when sinners humble himself beforehand. This is utterly amazing. Ahab is the worst king Israel ever had. Near the end of his life, he repents and God shows him mercy. I would not have done that. Just saying. Of course, God, if he was me, would not have shown mercy to me either because I am a sinner, right? So God shows Ahab mercy, but he pronounces judgment on Jezebel who is not repentant. He said, you are going to be killed and dogs will eat your body. Now, dogs in that era were not pets, right? They were wild, feral scavengers like jackals or hyenas. Calling someone a dog was an epithet. Them was fighting words. That was an extreme insult. Dogs lift off the garbage of the cities. For Jezebel's body to be eaten by dogs was a statement that, Jezebel, you are garbage in God's sight. And you're going to be thrown out like trash. 
That's how God viewed her wickedness. There would be no memorial, no burial. They said that you'll read it, we'll come to it. They found the palms of her hands and the, and the for feet, and that's all they found. The dogs ate everything else. And this was a queen. So all of Ahab's family was to be exterminated. It says if your bodies are left in the field, the vultures are going to eat them. If they're died in the city, the dogs are going to eat them. The implication is, Ahab, when your children die, no one will care enough to bury them before the wildlife eats them. Your children's bodies are going to be discarded like dung. The author of Kings concludes that Ahab was the worst king Israel ever had. He married a woman who was an expert in evil, incited him to do evil, and he followed her. He followed her false gods. He worshipped her false idols because she worshipped idols and followed false gods. She was the spiritual leader in that home, clearly, and he followed her evil example. Now, it says, when Ahab heard the words of God's judgment, he was convicted of sin. He exhibited at least all the external signs of contrition and repentance. He tore his clothes, a sign of grief. He wore sackcloth. He lay in ashes, right? He fasted. He went around despondently. And God noticed. God said, Elijah, have you noticed that Ahab is, is, uh, has a change of heart? Because he's humbled himself before me, I'm not going to release the judgment, I'm going to postpone it. So judgment will fall, but it's not going to happen until after his death. God is always pleased when people repent. Always pleased. Jesus told the story of the one sheep that was lost, and the shepherd goes and finds that one sheep. I'm looking at the mercy of God. This guy is a committed sinner. His wife is a committed sinner. And you get the impression that God is visiting him with judgment, hoping giving him an opportunity and more opportunity and more opportunity to repent and turn around and come back. Truly, we serve a God of great, great, great mercy. You know, sometimes God's own people are not very good at that. When Jonah went to preach to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, yet 40 days and God's going to nuke you, right? And it said they repented in sackcloth and ashes. The entire city from the king on down sat in ashes and sackcloth and repented of their sins. And there were hundreds of thousands of them in the city at that point in time. And God withheld his judgment, right? And Jonah was hot. What are you forgiving these people for? Nuke them, right? Because, you know, I'm special. I'm your people. Israel is your people. And anybody who doesn't like us, you should kill. Well, James and John said the same thing. They said, should we call fire down from heaven on those people that don't like us? Right? I mean, we do that sometimes. See, God is both perfectly just. He will always honor justice. But he delights to show mercy. He delights to forgive people who humble themselves and seek his forgiveness. That's why he sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and pay the penalty for sin so we could be reconciled to God. And we have so many family and friends who need a closer walk with the Lord now. And the Lord is working in their lives, just like he worked in Ahab and Jezebel's life, to bring them back. And sometimes that involves what? Troubles and trials and heartache and suffering and pain. I look back at my folly. I had to get run over with a Mack truck before I came back to the Lord. I'm above average stupid. You should not be like that. But that's what sin does. So when you pray for your children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and family and friends, when God works in their life, don't get in the way because it'll probably involve pain. 
If you think you suffer because of the sin of the people you love, think about our Heavenly Father who weeps over people who he wants to have a relationship with. We serve an awesome God, just an awesome God. Okay, let's review. One, when you covet, you are craving what your good God has given to someone else because you are not content with God or his gifts to you. Since God owns everything, those who steal are ultimately stealing from God. Now, he's loaned it to those other people, and when you try and get what they have, you're basically telling God, you made a mistake, you should have given it all to me, right? Number three, if it's evil in God's eyes, it's evil, even if it's legal in man's eyes. Never forget the word of the Lord, the law of God, trumps human law, always. No one gets away with anything. Everybody is accountable to God. We have to remember that God is sovereign and he will judge when he chooses to judge. And we are to remain faithful and obedient and not take matters in our own hands. Scripture says, leave room for the vengeance of God. In other words, you don't take vengeance, let God deal with it. God's punishment for sin is perfectly proportional to the severity of sin. When God deals with sin, he knows exactly what the judgment should be. And lastly, God delights to show mercy when sinners humble themselves before him. And you cannot ever get to the point in time where he said, I'm as close to God as I want to be. When you take him for granted, your relationship begins to deteriorate. That's why confession of sin daily, hourly, is so important, that you're walking with him with a pure heart. And use that bar of soap in 1 John 1, 9. Okay. Read ahead. Next week, Lord willing, we'll uh, finish 1 Kings 1. We still have 2 Kings, or 1 Kings 22. Thank you all for paying attention. Love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.